in a crude laboratory in the basement of his home. It's John from CEO Raider. Welcome to the CEO Raider podcast. If you like the podcast, please give us a, a like, write a review on Apple Podcasts. Makes it easier for others to find us. It helps us to continue to do this podcast since it's a free podcast. Did you see that PayPal suffered a, a breach? 1.6 million PayPal consumers were exposed in a hack that came by way of an acquisition that PayPal made of a company called TO Networks, TIO. And we talked about this in a recent podcast. I don't recall which, but we talked about how, you know, whether it's a function of M&A or, or partnerships where you have a couple of companies connecting through APIs, those APIs present, they potentially present opportunities for exposure to the bad guys for cyber breaches. Similarly with, with M&A, if you acquire a smaller company, or it could be a large company like Equifax, but if you go out and acquire in particular a smaller company, that may not, may not have the most robust processes in place around cybersecurity. When you're doing your deal, due diligence, your M&A due diligence, you know, one of the things you have to do today in addition to sort of, you know, the accounting due diligence, the, the, the HR due diligence, the customer due diligence, the financial projections due diligence, all that stuff, product due diligence, you've got to put cybersecurity in there. You, know, you could roll it up under, under your product due diligence, making sure that all the products and connective, uh, connective endpoints are secure. Frankly, I would, I would give it its own bucket, even though it is sort of part of product in, in overall architecture. To give it the attention it needs, it probably needs its own bucket on a page. If you have like a, 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 a spreadsheet in which you have the various boxes that you have to check off during your M&A due diligence, cybersecurity deserves to be called out. And you've got to have the right people look at it, not just you know the, the, the person who's in charge of architecture at your, your firm or a handful of database engineers. You, you've got to you know, if you don't have the expertise in-house, maybe what you do is you bring on a consultant, a cybersecurity consultant, make them sign an NDA, you know, make sure they don't leak the deal to anybody, but get them to look at it. Because again, it's not a function of size. It could be a, a tiny little company. And just because it's a tiny little company, once you bring them in your four walls, they can create all sorts of problems in massive exposure. You know, that's much greater than their, their size. You know, the two aren't related. Other than maybe if they are small, they have, you know, they're more likely to have risk of, of uh, exposure within their platform. So I'm going to keep mentioning it. It's not like a broken record, but you've got to think about cybersecurity in all phases of your business. Your, your, your business, your core business, uh, any, any partnerships you may have, uh, particularly where, where you may be sharing data with, with the partner through APIs and what have you. You know, cybersecurity has got to be part of that deal. It's got to be a cost that you build into partnership agreements. Hey, if we're going to be sharing data, how, not only how are we going to do it, but how are we going to secure it? That needs to be part of your, your partnership agreement and the associated costs. So you've got to factor that into your ROI equation. And then certainly for uh, M&A transactions. Again, that's going to be a real part of the M&A due diligence. And it's not enough to say to target company X, Hey, do you guys have a cybersecurity program in place? Yeah, we use ABC vendor. That, that, that's not enough. You have to know what that means in, in detail. And shore up those, those risks, certainly before you, you close the deal. Otherwise, I think it's just it's, it's negligent. I, I had some requests to comment on the, uh, the, the CVS-Aetna merger. I looked at this space a little bit when I was a, an equity research analyst, and I just, I'm not a fan of the healthcare space. 
because it's tail wag the dog. The incentive structure is set up is set up to to benefit the insurance carriers as opposed to consumers. And to repair healthcare, you have to approach it from the consumer end, not the provider end or the insurance carrier end. Change has got to come from the consumer. Part of that problem is cultural. I think you know here in the United States, we tend to address healthcare after the fact. We get sick, you know, depending on the severity of the illness. It's you know aspirin, cold medicine, or you know, surgery or some expensive drug, as opposed to preventive activities, exercise and so forth, healthy diet. I think companies like Apple are going to create massive change. Some of the, the stuff they're talking about doing with the, the Apple Watch, making us smarter about blood sugar levels, heart rate, and having sort of a portable reminder. And some of us may not want that, but, you know, change has to come from, from somewhere. I remember, I remember in the early 90s when I was in college, email was rolled out during college or shortly after college, and I think it was rolled out by the time I graduated college in 95. And, and I remember a number of people saying, well, I don't ever plan on using email. This was in the workplace. I can remember people who at the time were maybe in their mid-30s and 40s are saying, yeah, I don't plan on using email. Number one, you're not long for the workplace. Number two, I can promise you, you will be using it at some point. And it was apparent back then, right? You just knew. It wasn't going away, and eventually people would crack they would cave. They would use it. Same with tools like the iWatch. I don't have one, but I'll get some sort of wearable device that'll make me smart about that that stuff. And maybe I'll get it through the phone. Maybe I, who knows? But I'll, I'll adopt the behavior, as will many people. And there'll be other devices at lower price points that'll make it more affordable for for everybody to have this type of access to personalized health, let's call it, even though it's just sort of the, the bleeding edge of, of personalized health. It's not the robust data that we'll eventually have at some point. But the way the, in, the industry is structured today, it's, it's set up to, to, to benefit the, you know, the, the carriers in large part and the, the pharmaceutical companies. The drug prices are high. Insurance companies will subsidize the cost of those drugs make them affordable for patients. And then we as citizens subsidize this whole this whole game through premiums and such. So I think the first step in terms of what needs to happen to sort of fix the ecosystem, I think, you know, what Apple and other companies will do on the consumer end is going to be very helpful, and that's going to ultimately force change. It's sort of like bringing the iPhone into the workplace. It, 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 it permeates the workplace, and it changes behavior in the workplace. Do you remember back maybe 10 years ago? The workplace would issue Blackberries and they'll say, you know, only workplace devices. You can only, you may only use a workplace device. And then over time, people started bringing in their iPhones. Oh, I want to use my phone. I don't want to use the, the corporate issued device. Okay, give us your iPhone. We'll put on a security layer and da, 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 da. Next thing you know, you're using your iPhone. So I think it'll be the same with healthcare. Over time, eventually what will change it will be just a, a mass push from the consumer end uh, given that we're going to be empowered with an intelligence layer via devices like the Apple Watch in phones that will make us smarter about our health in real time so that when we go to service providers, we're going to be more informed about our health so that we can take preventive measures to ensure that we are healthier. But on the other side, on the, on the insurance carrier side and on the provider side, you know, perhaps if we forced the, the insurance carriers and providers to compete as opposed to taxing the heck out of the the public and both parties are guilty of this and eliminating the subsidies that we as a people provide to the to the carriers and the the providers if we eliminated those subsidies eliminated the regulation that that creates these artificial barriers between states and you know creates these oligopolies where maybe only have you know two, two or three insurance carriers in a particular state 
if we eliminate that regulation, eliminate subsidies, force these guys to compete, we'll have access to insurance and services at, at much, much lower prices. I remember getting into an argument, it was a, a friendly argument, with uh, a fellow reader of the Wall Street Journal, this is probably going back a year or so ago, the person was an insurance executive with one of the larger carriers, I don't think he disclosed which carrier he worked for, but I remember he was saying, hey, if, if, if you force us to, the, the, the subject was the Affordable Care Act. And the position I took was less regulation is better, force you guys, you being the carriers, to compete. And his position was, well, if you, if you, if you strip away the regulations that create these artificial barriers between uh, state borders, if you forced us to compete with any other insurance carrier who would want to compete in our state, we, we couldn't make money. We can't make money down there. We've got a large infrastructure we've got to pay for, ABC. It's like, you know, my answer, obviously, was if, if you can't make money at the low end of the market, guess what? Somebody else will figure it out, and it's not going to be the other large insurance carrier. It's not going to be an incumbent. It'll be an upstart, probably a technology company. Maybe they'll come to market with a peer-to-peer insurance model, you know, a different business model, combination of a new model plus technology, less people, less overhead. Not to say they'll, they'll make a 50% operating margin with this new model, but maybe they'll be able to squeeze out a 10% after-tax profit or better at the low end with the new model. And they will disrupt you. And at the end of the day, it's about us, the consumer, not about you, the insurance carrier. You've got your thinking backwards. So first thing, repeal these regulations that protect the insurance companies that are only there because when we elect government officials, regardless of what they say, they go into, they go into Washington and they get, I call it corrupted, but they get rolled by the lobbyists on K Street, the lobbyists that work for the insurance carriers. And what happens is then we are charged taxes and those proceeds go to subsidize the insurance carriers, subsidize some of the premiums, subsidize the cost of uh, you know, expensive pharmaceutical drugs. So we're subsidizing all this, right? So to Civics 101, the government doesn't generate revenue. It's not a profit center. Its source of revenue is us, American citizens. We're their sole revenue stream. Us and companies, taxes are their revenue stream. So the more expensive insurance gets, you know, the more they tax us. So need to fix that, need to repeal the state regs and force the carriers to compete. Force disruption on the market. And Amazon getting into the insurance space and, and Walmart, it's, it's a good thing. Um, you have some of these urgent care centers. I spoke to one I just came across today in, the, in something I was reading. I, I talked to this company, um, MedExpress, back in 2014. And at the time, they were, I think they were owned by Highmark private equity firm and they're now owned by Optum United Healthcare. So these urgent care centers that can provide sort of immediate care or basic care, sort of routine exams at a fraction of the cost of, of the hospitals. They're pulling revenue out of the hospitals left and right. So you're starting to see the hospitals and other large healthcare providers acquire these 
what are typically entrepreneur-owned and operated units are franchise-owned units, or in some cases now they're private equity-owned units because they've scaled. But these large healthcare providers and hospital systems are collapsing under their own weight. They're extremely inefficient. They're run by administrators. They're not run by business people or entrepreneurs. They couldn't think their way commercially out of a wet paper bag. And so when they see something in the marketplace that works, they acquire it. But entrepreneurialism, entrepreneurship isn't enough to create change given the market is so heavily regulated in their favor. It's just going to constantly be an uphill battle, pushing the rock up the mountain only to have it roll back down. So change is going to come you know, twofold from entrepreneurs and then from sort of the political process and deregulating the market. And then the third leg of the stool, which will really take effect once we have deregulation and remove the political layer from the process, will be the the change that's brought about by companies like Apple who empower the consumer with personalized data. And once we remove regulation from the system and consumers are empowered with personalized data, then you'll see all sorts of new products and services that are really innovative pop up in the marketplace where consumers can just buy X product and X healthcare service and prices will be listed online in real time. And you could have sort of a an immediate real-time transaction like you do buying a consumer device on, on Amazon, as opposed to this black box environment now where we go to the doctor, we don't know what's, what the outcome's going to be. We don't know what the cost is of anything that we we buy. We just know we have to submit a, a form to an insurance carrier who covers all or part of some, you know, it's entirely a black box system and the black box will go away. It's going to be more difficult to break than the cable bundle was, but it will get disaggregated. I hope it gets disaggregated because single payer is not the answer. Single payer just means everybody gets taxed a little bit more incrementally and the black box gets even bigger and that's just unsustainable. You know, if, 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 if you like the single payer model, I, I hope you like the the dental model in the UK. Take a trip to the UK. Take photos of uh, people's teeth, regardless of regardless of income level. And if those those teeth aren't enough to turn you off, uh, then I don't know what will turn you off to to single payer. No offense to my former colleagues in the UK, but the dental work is awful. See you all next time.